Take out your Bibles if you have them and turn to the book of James. The book of James, it's uh, toward the back of the New Testament. James uh, chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Well, we're in our uh, study of the fruit of the Spirit, and we've been looking at the various uh, fruit uh, that the Apostle Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5. He said, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, and patience. Um, so we've come to this, uh, to, to, uh, to this fruit this morning, to patience, uh, and let me just confess that I think uh, the two that I'm going to struggle preaching the most, the two fruit, well, maybe even three fruit by the time I get to it, but um, uh, last week peace was fairly hard because so often I don't feel at peace, uh, and then this week patience, that one, this one is going to be really, really hard. Um, so there are, if you plan to go to Disney, which I don't know if you ever do, there's all these uh, gurus that you can go online and read uh, about going to Disney. Um, I guess before the internet, you could go and buy a book, and the gurus in the books would tell you how to do it. Um, but there are thousands upon thousands of people that will tell you everything you know about planning a trip to Disney. Now, one thing that they universally will tell you that you should do, if you have children, especially young children between the ages of 4 and 10... They tell you, do not tell them you're going to Disney. You absolutely do not tell them that you're going until maybe right up to the day before, or maybe you keep it from them until you get there. Because if you tell a child that you're going to Disney World months or weeks in advance, every single day, for every moment of every day that they're awake, and even while they're asleep, they will be asking you, when are we going? When are we going? When are they going? When are we going? When are we going? Because children don't tend to have, they, they just don't have an understanding of time the way that adults have. And so they don't understand weeks and months. And they don't know how to delay that gratification and wait for it. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about being patient and how children have a hard time with it. Uh, I was driving back and forth to Baton Rouge a couple times this week and thinking about patience and Lo and behold, I'm stuck in traffic and thinking about children and how they can't wait. And here I am, seething in traffic. Why don't these people just move out of the way? Now, I can be going nowhere in particular and have no timeline whatsoever, just driving. And Amy can tell you this, that I, you know, I don't have anywhere to be or anywhere to be at any given time. And traffic is there and all of the sudden... I become the most important person with the most important schedule that, that the world has ever known. And I just need everyone to get out of my way. It's not just children that have trouble waiting. Adults have trouble waiting as well. So patience is hard. Tom Petty said waiting is the hardest part. It really, really is. But here's the thing for Christians. Paul, when he... he list these things out for us. He doesn't say these are optional. But he says, if indeed you are united to Christ, you will have love, you will have joy, you will have peace and 
patience. So let me read this for us today. This is from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Um, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, can you imagine being raised in that household? Okay, <laughs> Being raised with Jesus. Oh, he just never did anything wrong. He was always good. Um, one thing that's interesting about brothers um, and family members in particular, but brothers, um, brothers will never, ever, ever, will never, ever, ever, um, well, they, okay, let me say it like this. Brothers will rarely ever be pleasant with their brothers, okay? Brothers will rarely ever acknowledge their brothers when they do something good, okay? Um, brothers will give each other a hard time. Brothers will, um, will rib each other and, and be really sarcastic and maybe even sometimes really hurtful with each other. Here is James, the half-brother of Jesus, calling his brother his Lord. That never happens unless... You really are the half-brother of the King of Kings. So let me read this for us this morning. James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness or patience of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We pray uh, you would help us to see uh, your glory in it and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be a people who are patient and are waiting on the Lord, uh, that we would wait upon him and for him and that we would see you at work in our lives, transforming us more and more into his image through the preaching of your word today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we see the rule. Secondly, we see the representatives. And then thirdly, uh, the reasons. Uh, so first, James begins uh, this passage with the rule. And actually you see this rule repeated twice. Uh, and then some other rules that are given as well. This is... A bit unusual for us, almost uh, never do we see in the New Testament uh, just a rule that's given. Typically what you see is um, uh, you, you're given some theological teaching. So you're told about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he lived perfectly for us, uh, that he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve and then rose to new life. Uh, and all of those things are given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then after you're told the good news, then you're told what to do. Well, James has already covered the good news, so we're picking up at, toward the end. Uh, and he's just going in and saying, now that you know the good news of Jesus Christ, here are the commands that you're given. And he says, be patient. Now, I actually think that we should get a lot of encouragement from James saying be patient. Not just once, but twice. 
Because you never have to give a rule if people are naturally doing that anyway. You never have to say to a children, to children, be quiet when they're being quiet, right? You only say be quiet whenever they're yelling and screaming and they're not quiet. So here is James writing to a church, the early church, writing to a group of people who are sinners, who have come out of their Gentile lives, uh, who have confessed and professed faith in Christ and who are living for Christ. And he has to tell them, be patient. Why? Because they're not being patient. (laughs) They're like us. We have a hard time waiting. And so James says, look, be patient. He doesn't say it once. He has to say it twice. Be patient. And then in verse, in verse 7, and then also he says, you also be patient. We ha- he has to say it twice because it's so very hard to wait. Um, now, our struggle to be patient, our struggle to wait, reveals a lot about our hearts. Um, that's what struggle does. Struggle actually doesn't make us into something, but uh, very often it just reveals who we are. And this is the same for Christians and non-Christians. I would bet you that all of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, have the exact same reaction to traffic. Okay? You can be going down the interstate. You can be going down, uh, you know, you're going down, in, in, you're going into Baton Rouge, you get around the S-curves, And it doesn't, I mean, inevitably, you're going to get stuck in traffic on the S-curves, and there's going to be a Christian and a non-Christian right next to each other, and they're they're acting the exact same way, okay? Now, what's going on in that moment? Why do Christians and non-Christians react the same way to traffic or to, to having, or to a struggle, something like that? Well, the reason for it, I would say, is because in that moment, when you're forced to wait and to be patient, something... Uh, a reality is being reflected back to you. You're being told something about yourself, namely that you are not in control. Uh, see, as you were going down the interstate at 60, 65 miles an hour, up to that point, you felt very much like you were in control. But then, as soon as traffic hits and you have to stop, the reality and the um, the reality of your smallness and insignificantness in life comes bearing down on you. Because you know in that moment, as much as you don't like to say it, that you are not in control. And everyone in front of you is dictating to you what your life is like. Christian and non-Christian life react the same way because both of them have to realize that they're not in control. And so we, we respond to that with anger and with outburst because we don't like to feel out of control. And yet there it is doesn't matter how much you yell, how much you scream, how much you shake your fist at the guy next to you or in front of you. You're out of control and you don't like it. Here's the difference, though, between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian actually believes that he was in control and remains in control. And by his actions, he can change anything. In that moment for the Christian, though, you're reminded, I'm not in control. I never was. But God is in control of this moment. That's the real difference. And it's a struggle. And the struggle teaches the Christian and reminds the Christian. But the struggle hardens the non-believer or the non-Christian. Interestingly, in this passage, 
Whenever he says be patient, when James says be patient, he also tells us what the opposite of patience is. And he says it in verse 9, and this is weird, it's strange, but I think James really hits on something here. He says be patient, and then in verse 9 he says here's the opposite. But do not grumble against one another, brother, brother, so that you may not be judged. See, the opposite of patience is grumbling. Now, you may think of this and say, well, I don't grumble. I don't grumble. Um, modern people don't grumble. No, we've invented a new word for grumbling. We vent, right? <laughs> That's what we do. We don't grumble. I don't grumble. I'm not a grumbler. But I guarantee you, at some point this week, maybe even this morning, you vented to someone else because something wasn't going right in your life and you just had to get it off your chest. And, and I just need you to listen to this for a minute. I don't need you to respond. Just listen. You get it all out. Well, that's grumbling, okay? And James has to say, be patient and do not grumble. Do not grumble primarily against each other because as Christians, who causes us to be the least patient? It's probably other Christians. It's probably those we're in fellowship with. It's probably our family. And so he has to say, don't grumble against one another. Um, the word for grumbling, or it's, it can be translated groaning, but it's also a word that's connected to the pain of childbearing. Um, and it's interesting that he uses that kind of language to say that whenever you're grumbling against someone, you are giving birth to something that is very painful. Okay? Um, and he says, that's what, that's what venting is, that you are giving birth to to, to Feelings of, of animosity, you're giving birth to feelings of, um, of maybe anger and hatred. You're giving birth to all these things, and you're, you're groaning and grumbling just like a woman would in childbirth because it is painful. But he says, don't do that. Don't grumble against one another or vent against one another. Um, because we use grumbling, we use venting. Actually, we, we do this, we don't even know we're doing it, but whenever we're doing that... Um, we're doing that to try to control and manipulate situations. Whenever we go to someone else and we, we try to just vent against that person, we are really just trying to control a situation. We're trying to um, manipulate it so that we can get the upper hand. We're trying to make someone else look bad. We're trying to make ourselves look better. And James just says that has no place in the church. That has no place between God's people. So don't grumble. Be patient and don't grumble. So there's the rule, there are the rules that he gives us, uh, first of all. Secondly, uh, he gives us examples or representatives. Um, the reason why I had to use representatives is because I couldn't find a good E word for, um, for E, or for the first one. So I had to use R words instead, rule representative. Um, secondly, the representatives, he gives examples here uh, of people that we should imitate. And he actually uses that language. He says, here's, the, here's who I want you to imitate. Uh, three of them, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. He says, if you want to know what real patience is like, look to these three individuals. Or these three, uh, the prophets are a group, obviously. So look to them. He says, first, consider the farmer in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Um, uh, he's patient. He has to wait for Early rains and late rains. And remember, this is pre-modern era. This is before we had modern irrigation. 
this was a farmer probably in Palestine where they had two rainy seasons, one kind of toward the end of spring and one kind of toward the end of the summer season, two very heavy rainy seasons. So the farmer would plant prior to the first rainy season and then it would rain and then he had to wait for months and months and months not knowing if the Lord would provide any more rain. And he had to wait knowing that his waiting was not in vain. He had to express faith, believing that the Lord would provide for him. And so when James says, wait like the farmer, look at the farmer, look at how he waits. His time isn't wasted, his time is not, um, uh, is not fruitless, but it's actually fruitful. Because he's waiting for the Lord. And he understands something. He can't make it rain. But the Lord can. And so he's waiting for the Lord. Secondly, he says, uh, consider the Old Testament prophets. Um, and he says, uh, verse 10, considering as, consider as an example of suffering and patience. Jeez. Um, suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Um, The issue with the prophets of the Old Testament is that they wrote the things that they wrote, and they wrote everything that that was inspired of them, uh, or or that the Holy Spirit inspired for them to write. They wrote all of these things, and they were writing primarily about the coming Messiah, about the coming of the Lord. And they were writing to say, he's coming, and you need to look for him, and these are the signs. But they, they wrote not really fully understanding Everything about what they were writing. The book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that they wrote not fully understanding exactly what they were saying. Um, They didn't have all of the information. Uh, So that's how he wants us to wait as well. They wrote about the coming Messiah. They didn't know who he would be. They didn't know the exact time that he was coming. But through all of that, they waited and they suffered. You know, all of the Old Testament prophets died a martyr's death. All of them were killed for the sake of the coming Messiah. They fixed their eyes on the pre-incarnate Jesus, the one that they didn't have all the information about. They fixed their eyes on the promised one. They did not waver from him to the left or to the right. And they all gave up their life and were killed as martyrs. Some of them in gruesome and hard, harsh ways. For the sake of the gospel. And so James says, be like, be like the Old Testament prophets who didn't have all the information, who nevertheless waited for the Lord. And then finally he says, consider Job. Think about Job. So when you think about Job, there's a lot of things that you can think about Job, but he specifically mentions a few things. Um, in Job, he says, you have heard of the patience or the steadfastness of Job. And one of my favorite uh, things to say about Job is the reason why we say you need to have the patience of Job is because Job is still waiting for an answer from the Lord. Um, thousands of years later, Job asked the question, why did you take my children from me? Why did you take my wealth from me? Why did you take my health from me? Ten children. All of his wealth, he would have been considered a billionaire at the time probably. He had all of it taken from him. And then he had his health taken from him. And, and Job just kind of asked him, why, Lord? Why did you do this? And you know, he didn't give the, get the answer that we, uh, that we like. 
But he got something even better. Because when Job said, why did you do this? Yahweh showed up and he said, who are you to ask me this question? You are a man. I made you and you would dare to question me. And we think, that's not the God that we think of. God is supposed to be kind and nice and come and and kind of pat Job and say, there, 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 there. God doesn't do that. Instead, he takes Job throughout all of creation and he says, were you there when I did this and this and this and this? You weren't. You weren't there when I made the crocodile, that weird creature that really serves no purpose than to eat other weird creatures, right? You weren't there when I did that. You weren't there when I did all these things. When I put the constellations in their place and the sun and the moon and the stars, Job, you weren't there. Job, you can't possibly understand why I do the things that I do. And then at the end of all of that, at the end of it, Job said, I I, I repent I repent for my arrogance. I repent for even asking. And this is a man who lost his ten children. They all died on one day. Can you imagine the pain of that? Uh, This is a man who lost all of his wealth and all of his health. And he says, I repent of that. I repent of that in in the trash. Because I'm trash compared to you, God. And here James says, be like Job. Be like Job, who was patient and steadfast. Why? Because here's what he found out. He didn't get the answer to his question, but he found out, in spite of everything, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He suffered, he endured patiently. And here's the thing you learn from all three of these examples. There's no such thing as learning patience unless you suffer. There is no such thing as learning patience unless you suffer. And that's really hard to hear, but it's the truth. Um, That's why it's said, um, when you pray for patience, God doesn't give you patience. He instead gives you the circumstances to teach you patience. Because patience isn't something you can just get. Patience is something you have to learn. And that's why some people don't pray for patience. (laughs) Because it's a scary thing to pray for patience. So there it is. He says, consider the farmer, the prophets, and Job. Finally, he gives the reasons. And I want to do this very quickly. Uh, The reasons he gives. First of all, uh, he says, here's why you need to be patient. The reason why. Because the Lord is coming. Verse 7, therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Um, The reality of the Lord's return should cause you to be patient. Beloved, he's coming back. Things are not the way that they should be right now. But there is going to be a day when all things will be made new and things will be right. And that day is sooner than we probably realize. It may not be in our lifetime, but it is soon. The Lord is coming back. In 2005... Um, my, my tonsils swole up. I got really sick. Um, and, and I went to the doctor on a Monday and the doctor said, don't worry. Um, your tonsils, they can't get any bigger than they are. You're going to be fine. They gave me a shot, went home. I was okay for a few hours. The next day my tonsils swole up again. I could barely swallow. Amy was nursing me through all this. It was before we got married. Um, I, I didn't go to the doctor on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Amy, Amy, tricked me to get into the car and tricked me to go to the doctor. And the doctor, 
looked at my tonsils and said, they're really big. Don't worry. They're not going to get any bigger. Gave me a shot, went home. I felt good for a couple hours. I was able to drink some water. Um, that was the first water I'd really been able to drink in two days. Um, and and um, I was able to eat something. And then pretty soon after that, I could feel my tonsils swelling up again in my throat. Um, I went another day without going to the doctor. On Friday morning, I woke up. And I didn't realize it because the lights were off, but I had been spitting into a rag all night, just thinking, because I couldn't swallow, I was spitting. And then when the sun came up, I looked at the rag and it was soaked in blood. Amy rushed me to the emergency room. And the, as soon as I got in there, I couldn't breathe. I could barely breathe. I could only breathe by holding my neck up like this. And, and I would have to go down and spit blood. And I, the ENT came in and saw me and he looked and he said, your tonsils have exploded. We got to get them out. As soon as he said, we got to get him out, for five days, six days, I had not been at peace. Right away, I said, they're going to be gone. Relief is here. I was laying in the emergency room with all those bright lights and all that sort of stuff. They had not given me anything yet to calm me down, but I was calm because the doctor was coming to take him out. Same thing here. The Lord is coming back. Be patient. Be patient. The second reason... It's not just that the Lord is coming, but actually here, James says, the Lord is here. That's the language that he uses. Um, He says in verse um, verse 8, You also be patient, strengthen your heart or establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he's at hand, he's here. And then in the next verse, he talks about the judge. He says, see, the judge is standing at the gate. The judge is there. Judges stand at the gate because they're at the gate. And they sit in judgment. And the point that James is making is, it's not just that the Lord is coming, but he is already here. The judge is watching everything that happens. And you can know that anything that you go through right now, any bit of suffering, any bit of struggle is not going unnoticed. The Lord sees it all. If you are his child, he sees it and nothing is going unnoticed. And then thirdly, He says, be patient because the Lord is merciful and compassionate. He is merciful and compassionate. And I want you to understand, he says that about Job in verse 11. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When did Job learn that lesson? He learned that lesson after his ten children died. He learned that lesson after he lost all of his wealth. He learned that lesson after he lost his health. Before then, Job thought he was in control. He thought he was pretty good, he was pretty smart, that he had it all together. But after all of that suffering, Job said, You know what? I've learned not that I'm great, but the Lord is great. The Lord is compassionate, and the Lord is merciful. Job learned that. Job learned the Lord's compassion only after suffering. And so you and I are going to learn also patience when we go through suffering, when we go through trials. We shouldn't look at the trials that the Lord brings into our life as obstacles or as signs that the Lord doesn't love us. But in fact, the trials that he gives us are the very things that he uses to teach us about his goodness to us. Um. And so I just wanted to close by sharing a particularly hard period in my life. 
Um, a couple years ago, y'all were all, most of y'all were there for it when we had cotton for five months. When the judge decided that he would go home, my child was ripped from me. I thought, this is it. Most of y'all were there for that. One of the things that I saw is that our church family loved us, brought us closer together. It would have never happened if cotton wasn't taken. It brought Amy and I closer together. It would have never happened if cotton wasn't taken. And it makes having Alexander that much greater. I don't know why the Lord does the things that he does. For five months, we had that beautiful boy with us. But he does it because he's showing us his goodness and his mercy. God is good. And we can be patient in the meantime. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you even for the hard stuff. We thank you for the hard times that you give us that teach us about your goodness and your mercy and your compassion and your steadfastness to your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond with steadfastness as well, that we would stay with you, that we would not grumble or complain against each other, but that we would see your goodness for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and how much you love us. Make us a patient people for your sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.